Hello and welcome back to Deceleration Theory. I haven't decided how much creepy music you've listened to yet, so if there was a lot, I uh, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that. It's a special episode today um, because we have lost the superstar, and we are left with a we are left with the star though. So Jack Cooper joins us today. Hello, it's lovely to be here. As I am going up to university. Oh, going back to university later today, I felt like I would uh, milk him for every ounce of wisdom he has and leave just this husk in my wake. So, as you can see from the title, not that I can see because I haven't decided how I'm going to title this yet, Death, Anxiety and Ivan Ilyich, or Death, Love and Ivan Ilyich. Interrelated, but diverge quite far. Um, the story we're going to be talking about today is The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Leo Tolstoy. So, Jack, if you could give us a little overview of, uh, of the story. Yeah, and I think the, the theme of our conversation, which we will keep returning to, uh, is love. Um, or death. <laughs> and uh, something that I believe the Beatles did get right. All you need is love. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, The Death of Ivan Ilyich um, is a short story by Tolstoy which shares uh, the same theme as as much of his work. Um, So, therefore, you don't need to read it to engage with this conversation, but uh, we would much highly recommend you do as uh, it's a lot shorter than War and Peace. (laughs) Uh, And good in a a, a different way. Uh, Because The Death of Ivan Ilyich... Uh, it's just incredibly simple, both uh, in story, um, as you can probably guess, it involves just the death of Ivan Ilyich, um, and Tolstoy's uh, telling of it, which uh, revolves around two perspectives. Firstly, that of uh, a friend of Ivan Ilyich, who hears the news of his death as the story begins, and then we switch to the first-person perspective of Ivan Ilyich. And it's beautiful because it's um, it's celebrating the ordinary um, as well as providing uh, a warning for those who do live with a lack of meaning in their lives um, for yeah it, it, it can be regarded as a as a cautionary tale for Ivan Ilyich as a result of his um, lack of meaning and understanding um, of his of the true value of life and uh, the love the true divine love in life um, he cannot really face death and he struggles tremendously um, with the pain both uh, physical and spiritual screaming for three days before his death why this story is I think so beautiful is that through using this uh, first person perspective as we delve as books allow us um, into into the mind of Ivan Ilyich we see ourselves and uh, despite all of the his hypocrisy and um, his his uh, bad treatment of many people around him um, we see that he is worthy of love um, and that he is amid all of the um, the layers of um, deceit and lies that he tells to himself that in his entire society is cloaked in, he is this um, pure, innocent, spiritual being like all of us, so worthy of love, compassion, and uh, in the end, after all of the struggle, he does find the light. So Tolstoy is asking essentially a fundamental question that plagued him throughout his life. And that question being, is there any meaning in my life that my inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Um, and this is something that essentially the confessions is structured around this as he found himself surrounded by material splendor and yet fundamentally unhappy. And then as, yeah, as Jack said, the crux of Ivan Ilyich is that when he's actually confronted with the finitude of his life, when he's confronted by the reality of death, independently of an abstraction, he realises that um, he did not live as he ought to have done. But how could that be? 
when he did everything properly. And I think that's the uh, that's the effective horror of the story for me. It's this idea of living properly and then still not being fully accustomed to die. Because I believe that that's the thing that our society just completely does not prepare us to do, as is one, the awkwardness of the conversation, and two, as is the, uh, as is the abstraction that death is. I mean, at least to me in philosophy, it's rendered as meaningless as kind of a symbol within like a logical syllogism. It's really scary. Yeah, and I think in in academia in particular we've um we've we've moved away from the simple questions of philosophy of how should we live um and what is what is our purpose what is the meaning of life um to abstractions which um are buried and covered in um incredibly obtuse um intellectual language and are therefore very difficult to connect with and um lose the the simplicity and and meaning which I think philosophy can provide and uh, Tolstoy went through this um, kind of I guess I could call it a sort of existential crisis spiritual crisis um, which um, we've all been there <laughs> which I in particular connected with um, uh, in uh, in the summer having um, undergone a, a similar Reevaluation of 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 the assumptions that I've previously held in my life and that society has has led me to have. Um. I mean, the idea for me is that uh, society is essentially geared towards the shrine of success, and the shrine of success is wholly comprised of material objects, or it's comprised by the empty signifier of the word success such as a promotion or something like that. There's a great book called Ketonic Gnosis, which is an essay upon the irrationalism of Ludwig Klages, and uh, that essentially characterises that the idea of progress that uh, dominates our society, with um, progress defined in terms of technological achievement, is, a such, is essentially kind of like a post-industrial, um, a post-industrial conception, like Hellenistic man strove for internal and external beauty, medieval man for salvation, Gertian man for mastery, modern man only strives for success. We ignore values of truth and justice, of beauty and life, and ultimately we strive for that which can be conquered by death. The more rationalised we have become, the more inclined we are to view the world mechanistically, and viewing the world mechanistically views the world as something that is conquerable by death. We're almost digging our own graves. Yeah, it's viewing ourselves as as, as objects, as as it, rather than the um, amazing whole um, pure spiritual beings that that we are. Seeing the beauty, uh, and I think I come up with this analogy of it's like um, growing up in the West, in the secular West, is like growing up under a blindfold, um, and you don't remember when you put this blindfold on. Um, uh, it was put on so long ago, and this, what this blindfold did was, uh, it allowed you to, to question everything, and um, of course you didn't believe in God because, God can be proven behind the blindfold, um, and you also didn't, didn't believe in any of those other religions because they hadn't been proven, um, and this this position was fine, but it also, <laughs> led to, occasional. Um, bouts of existential terror when you looked into the darkness and saw just nothing um, after death um, and this made life feel incredibly precious and incredibly fragile and death incredibly scary and ultimately made life meaningless and um, it was only after taking off the blindfold for myself with the help of Tolstoy um, and an incredibly good podcast called Weird Studies and <laughs> various various Buddhist books, Ken Wilbur, um, various various different people um, help me see that there is this there is this div- divine meaning to life that is incredibly simple. We just have to take off this blindfold. 
which denies everything um, and see the world as it really is. That's the thing. I think that we seek methods of transport away from the real, whether they be erotic, whether they be uh, through social media, whether they be um, pharmacological, which unfortunately we're being more and more geared towards. And I think that's because the malady of the age, um, this kind of deep-seated feeling that runs through everybody, is a form of anxiety. Um, like, there's a great book, A Brief History of Anxiety, and Patricia Pearson describes anxiety as fear in search of a cause. And I think this is almost perfect in the sense of we're ultimately, we recognise that there is something there. But we have to flee from it because we're simply unable to face it. Um, Heidegger really gets at this, um, for he says in Being in Time that in the face of which one has anxiety is characterised by the fact that what threatens is nowhere. Anxiety does not know what that in the face of which it is anxious. So anxiety doesn't even know what it's anxious about. And again, I think this is the underlying mood of uh, the underlying mood of society we're running from something that fundamentally we have no clue what it is but all we know is that we have to run from it otherwise we face confronting something very real i've really uh found a lot of um insights and profound wisdom in this image of the mirror which i think can be seen to be can be found in um, so many different uh, religious traditions um, and what really interested me was when I um, connected that vampires don't have a reflection in the mirror or historically some vampires don't um, and it's I think this idea that uh, when we when we do bad actions um, we can't look at ourselves and that we rationalize we justify um, and we don't we don't want to be seen um and what i think um the worst what the most kind of uh the thing that can destroy us is to come to terms with our actions and our impact upon other people so therefore we have to construct this web of of lies that we tell ourselves these stories we tell ourselves um to make up for that and th this means that um the the sort of the spiritual path is not easy um, but you, and Jung talks about this, to individuate, um, to kind of truly reckon with yourself is to look into the, into the mirror and to see, see yourself and see everything that you've done, everything that you've caused and come to terms with your shadow. Um, and this is difficult because the more uh, um, bad things that we've done, the harder it is to look in that mirror. And if you take someone like Donald Trump, who's living in such an uh, extraordinary web of, of lies and deceit, um, we can feel so sorry for him because this is simply a protection uh, from having to confront that, confront that mirror and look at himself and what he's done. And in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, there's um, a play which talks about at the end of your life, um, you are... Uh, the uh, one of the gods of death holds up a mirror um, and that forces you to confront it right at the end and that's similar to what Ivan Ilyich has to go through is that his three days of screaming and pain um, come from this reevaluation of life and seeing the truth for what it really is see I, th I think um one thing that I find really interesting when we talk of kind of like regrounding ourselves in life, when we talk of being, is that society, or maybe perhaps not society as a whole, but um, at least kind of the sphere of mental illness, I think has got their ideas in relation to it completely backward. So um, my one of my favourite um, philosophers of psychiatry, Thomas Fuchs, he has this idea of a desynchronization that occurs in depression. And the desynchronization is essentially the idea that typically um, when we live, we experience life as a happening. It happens to us. Time almost flows over us. We don't pay any attention to it. We just live in it. 
but in depression, this is no longer the case, as the depressive, or for the depressive, time is suddenly this concretized force in their life. Time is noticed. Um, there's a disjunctive relationship between themselves and their experience of time. They can almost feel time moving around them and threatening to uh, threatening to move. And what I find really, really interesting about this is that I think this is a really, really good thing. I think if we're able to control time, if we're able to be in time, if we're able to ground ourselves in this in this flux, we have the potential for great wisdom. But unfortunately, I just think that we're too eager to uh, to drown out such experiences in um, psychopharmacological drugs, which is a real tragedy. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> I, I, I haven't been, had the experience, so I cannot, I cannot judge that. Um, but clarity is, yeah, clarity is incredibly important and it's uh, really just this idea of seeing through the illusions and in Buddhism, the root of all suffering and wrong views is ignorance. Uh, and it's, it's this idea that uh, the, a lot of people sort of see the, the, the spiritual path isn't kind of just lovey-dovey, it's, it's, not, it's not just easy. Um, it's really, it's incredibly hard to, to look into that mirror and confront the things that you've done and confront your face, your own, your true face, um, which are your actions and your, 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 um, your impact upon the world. But it is also, it was also this, um, incredible, incredible spirit of forgiveness, even though what you have done, you cannot take back, um, it's this idea of, of no blame, which I um, think is so amazing because ultimately when the root of all evil and suffering uh, is ignorance and St. Augustine actually also talked about this, um, then we cannot blame anyone. So we even say Adolf Hitler, Donald Trump, these people are not, um, are not they're not evil people, they're just cloaked in that their sort of spiritual being so caught up this is when i get taken off spotify for nazi apology (laughs) (laughs) we just have to have so much compassion for them because they're so so deeply ignorant um and in pain and in this web of lies and deceit um that it leads them to doing these terrible terrible things and therefore um, it's it's really this idea of no blame because who are you going to blame? Are you going to blame them or are you going to blame their parents or are you going to blame their grandparents or are you going to blame um, so many, there are so many different, um, there are basically infinite amount of factors that you could pin it down on and so it's not about blame and you can reverse this and it's this idea that um, enlightenment is not an achievement. It's just simply that you've experience the right environment for that to occur and uh, i think that's the um the beauty of the death of ivan Ilyich is that it's not it's not ivan Ilyich's fault he's he's been in an environment of um a, a profound lack of meaning and he's never had the opportunity to to question um the assumptions in his life until his death so we can't blame him for the the pain that he causes other people um, and he suffers that pain himself. So it's this spirit of love and forgiveness which Tolstoy um, and all pretty much all religious traditions get at, which is we just have to look in that mirror, forgive ourselves, and then um, then simply act out of love. That's actually that's really interesting because lots of societal critique talks of man as a body as if man, or at least modern man who is blind, who is blinded by simulacra, should be able to somehow see. But I came to the realisation that was quite sobering, that one, some people just don't care. Just They just don't care at all. Um, they have no interest in seeing. And ultimately, 
if they acknowledge that there is something that could be seen and they have no interest in it, who am I to force that, force that down their throats? My only worry, or, well, it's not my only worry, I have lots of worries. One of my major worries is that society is veering towards um, the complete erasure of, uh, of subjectivity um, and going to fall into this pattern um, of what William, I think it's William Burris, fall into this pattern of what Bolas calls um, the normotic type. And he says that the normotic type is typified by the numbing and eventual erasure of subjectivity in favour of a self that is conceived as a material object among other man-made products in the object world. So it's someone who is abnormally normal. They're alive in a world of meaningless material plenty. And I think that's my, that's my worry, is that if the world is completely frozen, um, if materialism eventually becomes all-pervasive, is there this gap, is there this break... Is there this potential for a space in which um, in which the soul can kind of uh, can experience some form of rebirth, authentic rebirth? I'm hopeful because I think that uh, gradually we're seeing that the the world is slowly waking up, um, and potentially I'm completely wrong, um, but I think that uh, science and um, spirituality are slowly becoming fused once more as with the work of people like Bernardo Castro and Ken Wilber before him um, and many people um, are pointing out the um, the links between quantum physics and Buddhism for example um, and just just the, the the simple fact that, that we're all all of the different traditions and disciplines are all just pointing at the same thing uh, and it's this idea of uh, it's this, pro- this profound idea of uh, interconnectedness which uh, deep ecology gets at ideas like the the wood wide web seeing finding out that trees um, have use fungi as a sort of interface of of communication and that um, nature we're coming to see nature as this kind of living breathing organism in itself some Gaia um, and and it's it's very easy to sort of blame science and to um, think oh like why <laughs> why why have you kind of caused this um, what Ken Wilber calls flatland world um, in which it's really devoid of devoid of so much of the meaning that um, Tolstoy and all the different religious traditions can provide, um, but reading about the, the the spirit of science when it um, if you can find an origin point if you look at go back to Galileo um, and those scientists in the in the seventeenth eighteenth century they were um, they had meaning they were um, religious themselves and I. I sort of look at the the spirit of their science was just an attempt to um, to separate um, the sort of the doctrine and the dogma of the church um, and the all-pervading nature of that from the truth and this willingness to inquire in the spirit of inquiry and doubt skepticism but combined with the meaning and we've just feel, feels like we've lost the We've lost the meaning, um, and also, and now we've devolved into a into a science that asks so many different questions, um, which Tolstoy says just aren't relevant to the very simple, profound one, which is how should we live, and what is the meaning of our lives, and the answer that Tolstoy finds, um, and that so many different religious traditions point to is this he says um just realize who you are how significant on the one hand is that which you would mistakenly call yourself identifying it as your body and how immensely great is that which is really you your spiritual being just realize this and begin to spend each moment of your life living not for external ideals but in fulfilling the true purpose of your life 
which has been revealed to you through the wisdom of the whole world, the teachings of Christ and your own personal awareness. Begin to live by seeing the, by seeing the purpose and well-being of your life in the daily progress of your soul's liberation from the illusions of the flesh and the increasing perfection of love, which amounts to one and the same thing. Just begin to do this, and from the first day, the first hour, you experience a new and joyous sensation of the awareness of complete freedom and well-being flowing ever-increasingly into your soul. And what will strike you most of all is how these very external circumstances which troubled you so much, but which were nevertheless so far from your desires, cease, whether they leave you in the same external situation or whether they lead you out of it, to be a hindrance and become greater and greater joys of your life. And if you're unhappy, and I know that you're unhappy, remember that what has been suggested here was not invented by me, but is the fruit of the spiritual works of all the best and loftiest minds and hearts of mankind, and is the only means of deliverance from your unhappiness, providing the greatest well-being one can attain in this life. Wow. I mean, I think uh, that's such an incredible passage, and one of the... uh one of the, the phrases that stuck in my mind is this under this idea of I know you're unhappy. This kind of unhappiness is um, as if unhappiness is fent- is unhappiness is fundamental to uh, to being. And uh, this kind of um, reminds me of uh, this brilliant brilliant Polish psychologist um, Dabrowski, who unlike kind of the uh, the mainstream in psychology. He thinks that anxiety and um, kind of psychological, psychic pain are necessary for growth. So he calls it the positive disintegration theory. Um, so people have to positively disintegrate, um, otherwise they remain in kind of a lower, a lower state of functioning, lacking true individuality. So you have to go through disintegration to access the higher levels of development. And I think this is potentially um, this is potentially one of the horrors of philosophy. Like Eugene Thacker talks about the horror of philosophy being kind of the grounding, the attempt to ground oneself in the meaningless universe. And I think he's part right that it's the attempt to ground oneself in the universe. But then there's also this dual nature of the beauty of philosophy, that once you've grounded yourself, you can see the meaning in the universe you can see these poles you can see concepts such as life and death being this necessary interrelated relationship of uh, rejection and integration there's no life without death there's no death without life Um, you see the necessary relationships between um, between nature and us between us and nature and ultimately as jack said the interconnectedness between everyone yeah it's this idea of um, it's not that the universe is meaningful or meaningless. Uh, someone put it really nicely that it's meaningless. That uh, Alan Watts said, if the universe is meaningless, so is the statement that it is so. That meaning is an undeniable part of being human. Uh, and nihilism um, seems to seems to forget that. And um, it's... It, Ken Wilber talks about that it, it is right. It is kind of half right. It's getting there. It's in in exposing some of the um, um, meaninglessness of so much of human activity. Um, it does. It, it it is it is part right, but it doesn't get to the whole, which is which is the placing of the divine through the unity of all of us and this 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 oneness that. Um, pretty much all spiritual traditions uh, get at Um, and it's this idea that you look into the mirror and what you see is um, ultimately is you see yourself fall away and you see everyone and this is the motivation this is the the guiding principle for acting out of love because if you are everyone why on earth would you ever do anything to harm anyone because harming other people is just harming yourself so therefore, it's this guiding principle, which uh, in Buddhism, it's the, regarded as the Bodhisattva, which is the being who has become enlightened, but remains to help others. And um, Buddhists see Christ as this Bodhisattva, um, who sacrificed himself for everyone. And it's this subtle shift of um, 
thinking of yourself um, not as um, n- not as radically different from Christ, but as um, as as brothers and sisters, which uh, Tolstoy talks about, and that we are see ourselves as Christ um, in terms of that what Christ represented is this action of compassion, self-sacrifice, and giving, and that um, similar to the Buddha, when we when ultimately we are all we are as ourselves kind of fall away we are our actions and therefore when we're acting out of love and compassion um, we are being Christ in that moment Um, and this is the guiding principle and purpose to our lives the only purpose I think that um, I can find that that makes sense is to is to help others and um, Bernardo Castro talks about the way he sees it is that we are the mind waking up to itself um, and whether I think this is um, so therefore our, our, our goal should be to help others to wake up um, and to simply to, to act out of love and compassion for everyone. Do you want to quickly explain the idea of no self? Uh, <laughs> um, it, yeah, we, why not? We could well, just you were you were referencing the self falling away, um, as if that's kind of a given concept. <laughs> uh, so, no self is uh, really, or I think it's called, it was originally anatta or anatman, um, is the is what distinguish originally Buddhism from um, Hinduism, and it's this idea that um, in Hinduism, um, it's this idea that you are a you have a a soul which goes through various rebirths and eventually becoming one with brahman which is everything um the kind of the universe the mind um and realize you eventually realize that you were an illusion but buddhism differs from this um subtly in saying that actually in in life you are not um in even sort of the same you is uh, is not reborn, and you are not a soul which continues and continues. That you can, um, you realize this illusion in life. So again, these these spiritual traditions they aren't um, they they're not they're all getting at the same thing. But um, Buddhism was incredibly precise about this um, notion of no self, um, and it's one that um, neuroscience and and science scientists are are converging on and realizing. Um, it's true just 2,500 years later after the Buddha first talked about it and it's it's not saying that um, the, the self kind of like completely doesn't exist because the self is necessary to life it is necessary to be um, to have a self to be a human being um, it's simply saying that that can be transcended um, and that at the ultimate level of reality the self falls away and I think um, so much of our fear of death comes from this clinging to this idea of the self and I see it as death is like um, a doorway which um, we know we will have to we know that I will have to go through at some point during our lives and the vast majority of us have to be dragged kicking and screaming through that door as Ivan Ilyich did um, but those of us who can truly conceive of the necessity of death as it is to life and to birth, for birth to occur, you need death. If you can transcend the self, you can see that that door ultimately falls away and you don't go anywhere. I think it's almost, uh, it's also about realising that what life essentially is, is um, as an individual, I'm not this kind of, embodied being who is um, a constant Um, I'm essentially just a performance Um, I'm a kind of a a, a living structure um, that constantly shifts in the eyes of anybody who sets eyes upon me Um, and I think that's that's really important even though um, I worry that essentially we're becoming so fractured um, in the times of modernity 
that it's very hard to get back to any form of integrated whole. Like even the ego, even the kind of phenomenal hub of perception um, is potentially is potentially shattered. And even our ideas of ourselves can't be affirmed against the thoughts of others or even our own mirror image. And this is one of the uh, this is one of the symptoms of schizophrenia. So when like Deleuze and Guattari talk about kind of a schizo society, um, this is an idea that I really like. Mm, I I think it, we have to. It's so important just to see the endless, infinite. Um, nature of ourselves even though uh, the reality goes transcends both finite and infinite um, and you can see this I've been looking at, at mathematics and um, Robert Kaplan said Robert Kaplan and Robert Kaplan said that uh, if you look at zero you see nothing but look through it and you'll see the world um, and it's this such this important thing I think of of looking through things and not seeing an end and I think that so much of um, our the mistake we make um, under materialism is to to think that there is an end and to see um, atoms and sort of basically matter as the the end of everything, the basis of everything. When actually you can um, ultimately you can go through that. We see that um, every subatomic particle. Um, is uh, an energy dance, a pulsating process of creation and destruction without end. And for modern physicists, Shiva's dance is the dance of subatomic matter. And in Hindu mythology, Shiva is this continual dance of creation and destruction involving the whole cosmos, the basis of all existence and all natural phenomena. So it's seeing that, um, seeing this, this emptiness, um, in, in ourselves and everything which is which is not a kind of nihilistic emptiness because it's also fullness at the same time um, and it's being able to go through go through the um, through the circle fall through symbol um, and realize as you can do in in fractal mathematics is shown if you can go on the internet and find a Mandelbrot set you go through um, a level to find to find um, another level underneath and it's uh, William Blake talked about that we see um, a universe and a grain of sand and eternity and a flower I, I think I've just butchered that completely but it's a beautiful um, beginning to his poem All Grooves of Innocence and this idea that you can find in something that seems so ugly um, you can find beauty in it it's just a matter of seeing it I think the notion of an end is quite interesting, um, especially in relation to death, because I think that at least within the world of technology and within the world of transhumanism, death is starting to be viewed as a problem, a technological problem that can be overcome. And I think this is a this is a really, really scary thing in the sense of um, death is something that man can conquer not by spiritual means, but by technological means. So will there eventually be a plane um, onto which our consciousnesses can be uploaded? And I myself prescribe to kind of Heidegger's views of the necessity of at least some form of finitude, um, because I think that if this was the case, then what impetus would there to be to live, um, to, be to be embodied and live when I could be living on this this crazy digital plane and I think if the world does reach this point it's not necessarily a world that I'd want to be part of I think it's terribly Black Mirror-esque I think uh, yeah what's what's really important is um, just seeing the wisdom in religious traditions and uh, I got into first kind of stumbled into Buddhism really through first going through the path of self-help and um, finding a, an immense amount of wisdom um, in people like Dr. Aziz and Tony Robbins, who, although although devoid of a of a kind of religious tradition um, that they're working in, they are saying the same things that all these traditions are. They're just um, um, unfortunately, well, for for their brand and 
for people to come to them they have to kind of they have to say it's 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 them it's me this is i've come to this and i have the answers when actually the answers are just out there for free and anyone can find them in so many different places and um and this is what's so important is is having the combining the 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 meaning and the um tremendous um benefit of self-help and um all of the um all the things like gratitude and um just compassion for yourself all of, like all of these things are spiritual because um in order to love everyone else you first have to love yourself and it's <laughs> i know myself it's and it, that is probably i find the hardest thing and it's in mahana buddhism it's this idea of seeing the buddha seed in everyone um so there's a there's a gatha that um i've memorized which is uh when you see someone you say a lotus for you a buddha to be and it's seeing that everyone in them has that buddha seed and we are not um everyone will get there at some point and seeing i like this idea of seeing if you see all of humanity is operating on this circle and i think we're so quick to forget where we've been um i myself was so guilty of it um being vegan for example um and for, almost forgetting that only in february i was still eating meat in the same position of of last, ignorance last february. <laughs> last february in the same position of ignorance and we forget where we've been and forget who we were and we only know the the version of ourselves now and therefore um we have to i think see life and other people as just at different parts of this circle and um we're constantly constantly going around and constantly moving and ultimately we're not um there are so many different versions of us and the re- the truth is that that i that we think exists and that we cling to doesn't and that um see we need to see ourselves instead as this as this stream as this and stream of of movement um i mean it comes down to me and t- it boils down to how we perceive and how we interpret time right so if we hold this relationship that the past the future and the present the three fundamentally distinct dimensions within this kind of linear flow of time, then uh, I think we have the completely wrong idea in the sense of, yes, the past is a dimension, but it's a perspective that is totally relevant to the present, so much so that there are no such things as past events until they insert themselves in the present. And I would go as far to say, I'm not sure there are such things as past events um, at all, because I think that that which has happened and that which we could potentially access through memory exists in this kind of state of ecstatic temporality whereby it's continuously affected by the present. Yeah, I completely, I completely concur with that. And I th- Bernardo Castrop in his book, More Than Allegory, gets at this brilliantly. Um, and I would like to apologise for last week, um, perhaps accidentally straw manning him. This is a podcast. We're meant to just straw man everyone <laughs> we talk about. By saying the problem with Bernardo Castro is when actually um, I have no problem with Bernardo Castro. Sorry, Bernardo. <laughs> I think he's absolutely brilliant and everyone should read him. Send him an email. Don't do it on here. <laughs> um, I think that uh, Rainer Maria Rilke, in his book, Letters to a, or the collected work, um, Letters to a Young Poet, gets at this idea brilliantly and he says that uh, I believe that almost all our sadnesses are periods of tautening that we experience as numbness because we can no longer hear the stirring of our feelings which have become foreign to us because we are alone with the strange thing that has entered into us because everything familiar and accustomed is taken away from us for a moment because we're in the middle of a transition where we cannot stand still and that is why sadness passes what is new in us the thing that has supervened has entered into our heart penetrated to its innermost chamber and not lingered even there it is already in our blood and we never quite know what it was one might easily suppose that nothing had happened but we've altered the way a house alters when a guest enters it we cannot say who has come perhaps we shall never know but there are many indications that it is the future that enters into us like this 
in order to be transformed within us long before it actually occurs. And it's this way of seeing prophecy in the future um, as a mirror. And I think um, it's an incredibly um, insightful view into it. And the, the tremendous wisdom of, of prophecy is that at the, the ultimate level, these, these prophets, um, like the Nichung Oracle of Tibet, they recognize that uh, the past and the future um, dissolve into an endless flow of the present moment. And therefore, they offer this mirror to the person to see themselves and to then transform the, the future who is a who is a guest in them at that moment. And we see in the tarot, the only unnumbered card is the fool. And the tarot is operating as this mirror, as is the Nichong Oracle, who interestingly has a mirror over their heart. And it's this, and this is an idea echoed in um, the self-help notion of manifestation, that uh, you create internally the world for you externally, um, and this is such an important principle and can be found in so many places other than self-help. Uh, and it's this idea that we construct, we have to construct. Um, the, that beautiful uh, we have to construct an awareness of that beautiful world and for myself it's one of the um, um, the one of the appeals of becoming a monk is this ability to shape that environment and to become um, one with an environment of peace of joy of love of happiness um, and then we become that environment for other people that reminds me of um there's a great book called On Being a Pagan by Alain de Bermois and his interpretation of Heidegger and Heidegger's view of time. And he highlights this passage from Heidegger's introduction to metaphysics, whereby um, he's talking about the inception of our historical spiritual being um, in order to transform it into the other inception. So in the pagan perspective, the past is always the future. And Heidegger says... But an inception is not repeated when one shrinks back to it as something that once was, something that now is familiar and is simply to be imitated, but rather when the inception is begun again, more organically, and will all the strangeness, darkness, insecurity that a genuine inception brings with it, the beginning still is. It does not lie behind us as something that was long ago, but stands before us, for the beginning has invaded our future. And that's something that I think society is necessarily going to have to grasp if um, if we have a paradigm shift towards some form of spirituality. I mean, Jack thinks Buddhism, <coughs> excuse me, I'm starting to align more with paganism and the idea of the literal sacralization of, uh, of everything, um, of the world. But I think there has to be this idea that the beginning has invaded our future as a must because we need to return to something or at least return to a way of being that has been fundamentally lost all these different traditions are just different pathways to the same thing and um, it's this recognizing that um, we all come from um, differing environments and different landscapes and different paths which mean that we walk different paths um, and different traditions connect with us um, and seeing I think seeing art and um, everything as, as this mirror um, some for, for myself growing up in a that secular um, atheistic west Buddhism um, provided a tremendously good mirror um, for me um, but that's only particular to my personal environment and it's there's this a great um, profound phrase said by someone I'm not I, I can never remember, I'll claim it. <laughs> um, which is um, that we think that we're different people living in the same world, but we're actually the same person living in different worlds. And it's this idea of um, the necessity of ignorance and the beauty of ignorance that um, Margaret Atwood gets gets out when she says. Um, character says in her book the blind assassin how could i have been so ignorant she thinks so stupid so unseeing so given over to carelessness 
But without such ignorance, such carelessness, how could we live? If you knew what was going to happen, if you knew everything was going to happen next, if you knew in advance about the consequences of your own actions, you'd be doomed. You'd be as ruined as God. You'd be a stone. You'd never eat or drink or laugh or get out of bed in the morning. You'd never love anyone ever again. You'd never dare to. And it's this celebration of um, of ignorance and and being human and the the immense uh, responsibility, um, but also privilege it is. Um, and and Buddhism and science both concur that it's incredibly. So the odds of us being alive in this form um, are so, so small. And just the absolute wonder of it um, is, is incredible. Um, I think Bernardo Castrup talks about this idea of seeing Christ, um, seeing, seeing ourselves as Christ in that we are God made human. Um, the Jesuit priest said we are, we think we are human beings living we think we're human beings having a spiritual experience, but we're actually spiritual beings having a human experience. And it's this um, absolute compassion and love for everyone because to be human is hard. To be ignorant is hard. To have to walk through the, um, to walk through the future backwards, as uh, I think Kierkegaard said. Um, and there will be pain. And that is what we have to endure because we're not a stone. Um, and everyone has a has a unique environment to them, a world of monsters and demons that they have to slay that no one else can even imagine. So before you judge other people, which we're so quick to do and to label, think, how can I? Because their world is so radically different from mine. Um, and underneath this all, is this idea that we're just that same person, we are one, we're just going through these different worlds along this circle of life. (laughs) Mm, I think that's really, really profound, this kind of idea of, um, this idea of thrownness, um, where everyone is held in to uh, to the world. We have no idea of one another's pain, because realistically, Pain is not something that can be accurately portrayed through language. Um, pain is something that has to be felt to be wholly understood. Um, we can get an idea, but it's like Bergson's anal- analysis and intuition. Analysis moves around the thing, throwing out symbols in which we can kind of have this grasp and relate it to other things. And the idea of pain is that we can throw out symbols um, to describe our painful experiences but the receiver of that symbol ultimately relates that pain to their own pain we have no idea what's going on with other people and it's to such an extent that we can't even imagine it i think the i think the the, the important thing that um we need we need to i think the thing we need to do more in our society um is we need to communicate better and um, we need to communicate more truthfully. And as I've been thinking, uh, look, we, we ask kind of about our lives and what, what you've been doing. And in lockdown, the reality is, is that um, the vast majority of us don't have much to say because we kind of have made this link between um, communication and conversation is about saying what we've done. When actually, um, the, 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 um, the amazing thing of communication is, is, what, is about connection um and is about feeling and so i would i would urge you to think when you're communicating with people to not ask how are you doing ask how are you feeling and if we can do so then we then we realize just how similar we all are because again we're the same person just in different worlds and we're all we all feel the same things or the vast the vast majority of us um, and that's how we connect. And um, in English, we use three words for the wind, the breath, and the spirit. In Hebrew, they use only one word, ruach, which I probably is mispronounced really Sounds badly like there. A <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think there's, there's tremendous wisdom in this. That um, how do you spell it, by the way? R U A C H. 
So it's very um, similar to the German word for ecstasy, Rausch. So the point is, is that well, breathe in, breathe out, and feel the divine spirit flowing through you. In the in your breath, is there is the spirit, and um, the great a great um, female Sufi mystic. Rabia Basri said, in my soul there is a temple, a shrine, a mosque, a church that dissolve, that dissolve in God. And it's finding that, that church in yourself. Tolstoy says, the kingdom of God is within you. And returning there to our own island of self, taking refuge there as, as, the, Buddha, as the Buddha said. Because the self is what we come into the world with. And so even though it can be transcended, it is not to be simply denied. We have to explore our, our own islanders in the Tempest, which is incredibly, I found an incredibly profound Shakespeare play and finally get Shakespeare after, <laughs> after all this time. Who knew what a, what a wise, profound um, poet um, that man it. is. And in, in, that, in that play, there is... Um, a spirit called Ariel, um, and I see Ariel as such a, a brilliant representation of karma and that Prospero, Prospero, who is on his island of self, um, is um, has, through his learning, has the power to do magic, and he is able to use Ariel um, to do his bidding. Um, and, and in the end, um, but, but Ariel is not his, and Ariel... Um, wants to be free and um and ultimately prospero sets ariel free and ariel says where the bee sucks there suck i in a cowslip's bell i lie there i couch when owls do cry on the bat's back i do fly after summer merrily 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 shall i live now until the blossom that hangs on the bough and it's ariel was just that that action um and um it is only when Prospero is able to conquer his demons um, on his island of self and let go of the magic and his desire to control that he um, is able to be set free like Ariel. Wow. Maybe I need to read a bit more Shakespeare. <laughs> but I think um, this gets us back to the, the, central, the central theme of Ivan Ilyich. And... Um, what the story, as we said at the start, ultimately results in is it results in the recognition of love. Um, it, rec- it results in the recognition of love as this kind of primal force. And he says at the end, which I really like, he says, death is finished. It is no more. For now, death cannot defeat him. And the idea is that he's relinquished this old desire for control and power. Um, He's realized that his life built upon attachments that are ultimately conquerable by death is, uh, is not the way to live. Um, for he says, all you have lived for and still live for is falsehood and deception, hiding life and death from you. And it's love that manages to penetrate. It's the true attachment to another human being that manages to penetrate and cannot be conquered by death seeing love um as understanding and it's this it's this idea that your friends your family um these these people are incredibly special and unique and and wonderful um but they're not the only special unique wonderful people in in life they're just the people that you've spent the most time with and the people that you understand try not to take that person <laughs> better than um everyone else and i see see um see time love almost as time and this ability that we have to love anyone the more time we just spend with them and the largely this is just simply because of being in the same location with someone we just learn what there is to love about them because there is always always something because everyone can be loved and it's the i see it as the the reasoning behind why actually it's been found that arranged marriages um, have a similar level of the couples have a similar level of happiness to marriages that are formed from couples who come together simply by freedom of desire 
um, because ultimately we can love anyone um, just the more time we spend with them the more we get to know what there is to love because there is always something because there's beauty in everything and that is I think what we'd like you to take away from this one so thank you very much for tuning in thank you to Jack for being here thank you have a read of Tolstoy's story and I will see you all very soon thank you very much it's all about love <laughs>